This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you once again for joining us on the show. You know, I would record this show even if I weren't doing it for a podcast, because on this show, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating experts from around the world. I get to learn all the incredible things that they know that I don't know. I get to broaden my own horizons. And as a bonus, I get to have all you listen to and make a little money because we record some ads. I mean, this show is so wonderful to do, and I can't thank you enough for supporting it. And just to remind you, if you want to support it even more, you can buy books at our custom bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books and when you do you'll be supporting not just this show but your local bookstore or you could sign up for a stitcher premium account that supports us as well and we got some brand new ways to support the show that we're that we're working on that maybe we'll be able to uh, announce very shortly but let's jump into this show you know if i told you the rich people don't pay their fair share of taxes in america i'd be willing to bet you would not uh fall out of your chair i think we all sort of take it for granted that rich people are able to get out of paying the same amount that we do. And, you know, maybe that uh, goes to show how fucked up our entire economy is. The fact that none of us are as angry as maybe we should be. But here's the thing. We all know it's happening. But until now, we haven't really had a sense of to what degree. We haven't known the exact figures, and now we do. Because the nonprofit newsroom ProPublica in recent weeks has blown the lid off of the tax secrets of the ultra-wealthy. Here's what happened. They received a trove of documents detailing the tax history of some of the wealthiest individuals in America, and they were able to determine that those people, in many cases, paid literally no federal income taxes at all for years. We are talking about straight-up billionaires who paid nothing to support the roads, schools, or any of the other uh, important things that make civilization function and that helped them earn all their billions in the first place. And by the way, all of it somehow was entirely legal. Well, most of it was. These stories are really bizarre. Let me give you one example. Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, a major Trump supporter, Elon Musk's best buddy, this dude, this billionaire, abused his Roth IRA. This is a consumer retirement savings vehicle. This is something that, you know, you're supposed to use to squirrel away a couple extra grand for retirement. He abused his to the tune of $5 billion in tax-free venture capital. Previously, we didn't even know this kind of thing even existed. I explained the scheme to my accountant. He was legit impressed. 
This story is incredible proof of how important journalism is, because without the journalists at ProPublica, we would have no clue any of this ever happened. And now that we do know it, we can call into question the structure of our economy, of our tax code. We can ask if we really want those who benefit the most from America to pay the least back into the system. Well, look, let's cut to the chase. I am so honored to say that on the show today, we have Jesse Isinger, one of the ProPublica reporters who broke this story, one of the biggest stories of the year. He's also the author of the book, The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Without further ado, please welcome Jesse Isinger. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you at ProPublica, which by the way, I have such enormous respect for what you folks do at ProPublica in my own role as a comedian who distills important information into short, somewhat stupid comedy sketches. We have based so many of our pieces on the work that you folks have done at ProPublica because you turn up important stories that nobody else does. Uh, I'd love for you to walk us through these blockbuster revelations that you have uncovered recently about uh, taxes about how the wealthiest Americans have been avoiding taxes and the tricks they've been using to do it. Uh, yeah, well, thanks. That's that's wonderful to hear because we often feel like we should trademark uh, the slogan "world's most depressing news organization." So I'm <laughs> glad that I'm glad that uh, no uh, way you found it useful. Somehow you guys make it fun. I don't know why. You know, you read the New York Times, it's kind of ponderous, blah, 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 blah. And ProPublica, here's what I think it is, is that behind your very excellent journalistic writing, I can tell you're a little pissed. I can tell that the <laughs> folks at ProPublica are like, the whole premise of the news organization is like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, you know, you know what these people are doing? You're going to lose it when you find out about this. And that makes it so much fun to read. And I did lose it when I read this information. So, so well, good, loop good, in good. Here. Yeah, I, I, we, we all have very, very um, high outrage quotients and just walk up, uh, wake up in the morning pissed off. So we, um, ProPublica obtained an enormous trove of uh, very sensitive tax information on the wealthiest individuals. And we're talking... Um, tax returns for thousands of the wealthiest Americans. You know, we're not, um, this is not uh, plumbers and maids and waiters um, and teachers. This is uh, really the 1% of the 1%, very thin slice. And we have years and years of data going back over 15 years. Um, And so we've been culling it for information um, in the public interest about how our tax system works. And our first story, the story that I did with um, two brilliant colleagues, Paul Keel and Jeff Ernsthausen, was uh, took took a look at the top 25 richest American taxpayers. Um, You know, this is Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Michael Bloomberg and these guys, um, household names. And what we found is that there are, they occupy a world outside of the tax system. They're basically in an entirely different universe. Wow. Um, and we pay taxes, most of the listeners pay taxes because they get a salary and they get a paycheck and the taxes get extracted from the paycheck. And if you make a middle-class income, like sixty dollars or $70,000, you're going to get 14% taken out of that paycheck for federal right. income taxes. And these guys... They are outside of the system. They don't really need income. 
We can explain that because that's going to be a difficult concept um, when you first hear it. Um, but because they don't really need income, they don't really pay taxes. And so what we did was we compared the taxes that they paid, which no one had ever seen before, to the way their wealth grew, the growth in their wealth, the many billions in that uh, their wealth grew. And what we found is from 2014 to 2018, they paid 3.4% in taxes compared to their wealth growth. So 3.4% for the ultra wealthy versus 14% for you and me. Well, I don't know about you because you're a rich comedian, but me, (laughs) my fellow, my fellow normal people. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I have a pretty standard tax rate as well. I, I'm a I'm a contractor in the entertainment industry. And, and so I have somewhat of a weird structure. But I know that I'm paying more than three <laughs> percent of, of yeah. taxes. Um, and I mean, are. I'm looking at I'm looking at some of these uh, on your in your piece that like Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world and f- one of the most like revered billionaires and the people seem to love Warren Buffett. Um, he paid what you call a two a true tax rate of 0.1% from 2014 to 2018. That's 0.1%. Yeah, that's 10 cents for every $100 um, their wealth grew, his wealth grew. So what the reason why we're calling this the true tax rate is the traditional rate uh, on taxes is you compare the income tax paid to the income that came in. Um, But Warren Buffett is the perfect example of this, the the essence of this, because no one has avoided more tax for as long as Warren Buffett, as you say, the sort of grandfatherly um, guy who is regarded as uh, extraordinarily patriotic and um, makes perfect sense when he talks. He's one of the ones Um, people say he's one of the he's one of the good billionaires. Exactly. He's even made a lot of press because I think he famously said what my tax rate should be higher than my secretary's tax rate is a quote. I think I remember getting a lot of play from him. He has argued for higher tax rates. He's the one who liberals especially will be like, oh, yeah, he's one of the he's one of the good guys. Soros is one of those two. Exactly. And they. Uh, point to him because it sounds like he's advocating against his own interests um, by saying that tax rates should be higher. But the really fascinating thing about Warren Buffett is that um, it's true. He pays a very low tax rate um, on a traditional tax rate compared to his secretary. But that's not the real story at all. The real story is that he avoids taking income almost entirely. So Mm. in 2014 to 2018, his wealth grew by $24 billion, $24 billion with a B. But he only had $125 million of that in income. The rest was appreciated stock. Um, And most of his stock is in Berkshire, and uh, he lets it grow, and he doesn't sell. And because he took so little income, he paid so little taxes. So he ended up only paying... $24 $24 million in taxes. And that's where you get the 10 cents for every $100 his wealth grew. Um, now, average Americans, again, they pay about $14 for every $100 they take in versus 10 cents for Warren Buffett. But even when you're comparing their growth in their wealth, it's much, much le- uh, more that you pay in taxes if you're an average person compared to your wealth growth than 
the ultra wealthy like Warren Buffett. Okay, so let, so let's really clarify what we're talking about here. When we say wealth growing, Warren Buffett's wealth growing, or my or your wealth growing, we're talking about hey, maybe you own some stock, maybe you own a home. In Warren Buffett's case, you own a lot of stock, you own many companies, you own all these other things, and the value of that goes up in the market, but you have not necessarily sold it yet and realized that value, right? Or or it's not yet hitting your personal tax return because you haven't like taken the money yet. It's, you know, your stock is still still sitting in your stock portfolio. Your house is still sitting around. Um, Income is like, that's what you would get as a salary. And that would be the moment putatively that Warren Buffett, I suppose, would pay himself. So uh, I I get what you're saying, that the tax rate, the true tax rate is like, well, he's making all of this money on all these investments and he's not paying any taxes on it. Right. And so our it's a very simple concept um, and a fundamental concept um, that we tax income, not wealth in this country um, and have done for about 100 years. Um, And in fact, when people criticize uh, our series, they say, you idiots, uh, we tax income, not wealth. So you're not really saying anything particularly insightful. Um, But in fact, we did understand that basic concept and we explained why this evolved the way it did and why it's important to think about wealth growth for the ultra wealthy. And the reason is that everything stems from their wealth growth. They, uh, all their power, their economic power, their political power, um, and then also their lifestyles um, all flow from their wealth growth, Mm. not their income. They are able to fund their lifestyles, but they don't fund it with income. Instead, often they fund it with borrowing. And so the catchphrase for the way the ultra-wealthy work, which is completely different, and this is why we sort of say they're outside of the tax system and they, they occupy a different universe, is they, uh, the catchphrase is buy, borrow, die, which is you buy your asset or you build it like Jeff Bezos builds Amazon um, or Buffett builds Berkshire Hathaway, um, or you inherit it like uh, the Waltons, three uh, of the Waltons are in the top 25 American, richest Americans, but they mm-hmm. inherited their, their wealth from Walmart, the Walmart fortune, the Mars family is in um, the top wealthiest people. We have a lot of dynastic wealth in this country. So you buy, borrow, you borrow against um, your assets. Um, and when you're borrowing, um, you're paying a very low interest rate. In fact, you don't actually often have to pay the interest rate because the bank has the ability to call your stock. So it's essentially you're getting it for free or almost for free. You don't really have to pay it back. Um, so you're getting this borrowing to fund your lifestyle. And some of these guys have very lavish lifestyles. Like Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, he at one point had $10 billion in bank loans. And he uses that wow. to... Fund the lifestyle. So he had an America's America's Cup sailing team. He had a bunch of mansions. He's got this giant estate that's um, modeled on a Japanese feudal village. And he owns a Hawaiian island uh, and the entirety of a Hawaiian island. Um, And you get that often. These guys get that through borrowing rather than actually spending cash on the barrel head. Um, And then they die. Um, even these guys have to die, Some, uh, most of them, so they try to avoid it, but they, you, even they do that. And, um, and when they do, they can avoid uh, estate tax. And so they essentially huh. accumulate these 
spectacular fortunes um, and, that really remain essentially untaxed. Wow. So, okay. I'm starting to get it because because I, when I was reading the piece, I, I did have this question. I was like, well, hold on a second. We don't tax investment gains in America until you sell like, you know, I got a I got a Vanguard account. I have some, you know, like a bunch of index funds in my Vanguard account that I'm saving for retirement. Some of it's in a retirement account, but some of it's in a taxable account. And, uh, you know, that that goes up and I'm not taxed on that until I sell it and I need the money. Right. And I guess we can talk about whether or not that's a good tax system, but you know, that's how it works for the average person. But you're well, saying- so I hate to correct you. On that, oh, okay. This is the way th- this is a weird thing about being a normal human being as opposed to an ultra wealthy person, which is that um, when you have a mutual fund, the mutual fund buys and sells within the given year. And you actually pay taxes on that when they, oh, uh, okay. when buying and selling. So in fact, when you get your Vanguard account and if you've got some mutual funds in uh, of stock funds or even bond funds and they've taken some gains, which they do over the year, you've been taxed on that. These guys are not taxed, you're taxed. All right, no, so I'm already being taxed in ways I don't appreciate. Um, <laughs> but but I, I understand that general principle. But what these guys are able to do is the investments that they have, that's not just a mutual fund. Their investment is like a whole company or like all, you know, yeah. all of these vat real estate, all these vast things that they own. So first of all, they can use those to enhance their lifestyle. They can fly around in the company private jet or whatever it is like that. And as you say, it gives them power, you know, because they own Berkshire Hathaway or, or Bezos owns Amazon. He gets to, you know, be invited to speak at things. And he like gets to talk to politicians, all those sorts of things. Um, but then also, because they're able to borrow against it, that gives them another huge source of income that is not taxed as income, essentially. And that's something that only wealthy people can do. We can't do that with our investments. Only they can. Right. I mean, uh, the you, the bank isn't going to give you that much money. The investment bank um, isn't going to give you that. And you can't get in the door at a wealth advisory um, firm that that's going to do that. Um, and the vast majority of Americans actually don't have wealth in the stock market um, yeah. or any substantial amount of wealth in the stock market. The vast majority of um, Americans have wealth in their homes. Um, and uh, you can't, you know, some people can sort of tap your home uh, a little bit too, uh, but that gets dangerous. You know, you get a home uh, equity line of credit and things like that. And again, this is uh, something where uh, normal people are in a different universe than the ultra wealthy because the ultra wealthy have assets that are appreciating and are untaxed. Um, the normal people's wealth, to the extent that they have it, is in homes, and um, they have a wealth tax. Um, there, your listeners may be aware of people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who have advocated for a wealth tax in America, where which would potentially solve this problem of the ultra wealthy being outside the tax system, because we would say, okay, you are worth a billion dollars. So we're going to take 2% off of your billion dollars every year. Um, So, uh, but average Americans, we don't have that, obviously that law for wealth tax in America, but average Americans pay a wealth tax in the form of property taxes at the local level. Um, And so again, the ultra wealthy are not taxed on their wealth, but average Americans are taxed, not just on their income, but on their wealth. That's wild. But uh, okay, I I always want to get into another common counter argument about this. Um, 
is people will say, well, hold on a second. They're just taking advantage of the tax law, right? Like I, for instance, again, I have an accountant. My accountant says, hey, here's a deduction we could take. If you arrange your finances a little bit differently, here's another deduction you could take. And that's, again, I'm a contractor as a, as a comedian. Uh, I have a lot of business, business expenses. You know, my accountant says, hey, you could take this as a business expense, which you didn't do last year, but we could actually do it and you'll save some money, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm mm-hmm. going to do that. Uh, and... Uh, what is different between me doing that and Warren Buffett saying, presumably he has a very well-paid tax guy. I hope that I hope is the person is very well-paid who's helping him avoid this much tax. And this person says, hey, Warren, if you do X, Y, Z, you won't have to pay as much taxes. And that's what everybody wants to. Everyone wants to avoid paying taxes. So what's the difference? Well, so it's a, that is the essence of this. The point of our article, in fact, which is that this is perfectly legal. This is the system that we have chosen that has evolved. Um, and it's actually not, they're, they're not illegally evading taxes. Um, they're not using exotic strategies. They're using routine strategies, um, things that are, you know, just a kind of daily common sense things and completely outside the system. And the net result of that re, uh, is what we consider quite shocking. So the richest person in the world, Jeff Bezos, um, in 2011 and 2007, he paid zero dollars in federal taxes. And Michael Bloomberg in 2010 paid zero. And George Soros in three recent years paid zero. And Elon Musk in 2018 paid zero in taxes. Um, And so the it's legal, um, this system that we have. um, But the question is whether that is right, whether it's fair, whether it makes sense to people when they understand it. What we People did not know that the wealthiest person in the world, who is now um, worth something close to $200 billion, could actually pay zero in federal taxes. And we considered that pretty shocking. Um, and we thought that people should understand it and understand that it's just because it is legal and it is the system that we have. It was not um, sent down by Yahweh from Mount Sinai. <laughs> um, this was yeah. not written um, in the Hammurabi Code. This is um, this is a system that has evolved over time with um, political considerations um, and uh, is relatively recent and um, is not necessarily the system that we have to have for all eternity. So, yeah, I mean, you're... Do you feel or does your reporting take a position on whether what these folks are doing is wrong, like on an individual level? Or is it really for you about, hey, this is we need to talk about the system that we have that allows such behavior? Because I, I can see it both ways. Right? I can see that I'm, I'm a big fan of the systemic argument. Right. But I'm yeah. also aware these people have so much power. They create the system to an extent. Well, so just to be clear to your listeners, we were just reporters. You know, we're, we're at a news organization. We believe in fairness and accuracy and um, facts. And we do not, we're prohibited from taking policy positions. We're not taking policy positions. Mm. Um, and in this first story, I would say that I don't think that any individual that we wrote about was doing something that was um, wrong in a kind of 
deeply immoral sense or, you know, and clearly not, we did not raise any questions of legality. In subsequent stories, we have raised um, some questions uh, of, uh, it, that approach the line. So in a subsequent story by my colleagues, Justin Elliott and Trish Callahan and Jace Bandler, we wrote about how Peter Thiel, among yeah. others, had accumulated, Peter Thiel accumulated a Roth IRA, which is a um, very basic, boring, middle-class retirement vehicle to allow the middle-class to sort of scrape together a little bit of retirement money. This is what, when you watch, this story is mind-blowing. Yeah, the Roth IRA is like, you watch, I don't know, the most basic financial investment advice uh, and you know, you watch Susie Orman or whatever, and they tell you get a Roth IRA and you put five thousand dollars in it every year, and then by the time you retire, maybe it'll be worth a couple hundred thousand, and you'll you know you'll be able to supplement your Social Security benefits with that. That's the and it has some exactly. tax benefits, right? And there are two things about the Roth IRA. One is that you're not allowed to put. Uh, above a certain amount of money in. Now it's $6,000. Uh, originally it was $2,000 a year. Um, and the other is that uh, once you reach a certain income level, you're no longer eligible for a Roth. Yeah. Um, and the uh, great thing about the Roth is it's post-tax money, um, but then you put it in the Roth and you never have to pay taxes on it again. So that's the benefit for it, from it. But what Peter Thiel did was he put, they didn't just put cash into it. He put founder stock in this company called PayPal, which you know, everybody knows. Yeah, I, I think I've heard of PayPal. 1990s. Okay. Um, you know, now you know, I, I don't mean to be explaining too much, but no, 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 no. I, I think you're foreshadowing a little bit what a big um, deal this turned out to be. He got a Roth IRA and instead of buying a mutual fund, like most people do, instead of buying a target retirement, oh, I'm going to retire in 2050 kind of fund, he's like, oh, my Roth IRA, I'll buy a whole shitload of extremely cheap stocks of my own little old company called PayPal. Right. Right. The company that I control. Right. And um, the thing about the lots and lots of stock um, question is, well, how did he put lots and lots of stock into a Roth IRA if the limit was at that point, I think it was two thousand dollars. How does how did he do that? How did you put lots <laughs> of stock in? Um, and what you did was you called the value of the stock literally fractions of pennies. Each wow. share was literally fractions of pennies. And then you could put lots and lots and lots of fractions of pennies into your Roth IRA and be below um, the threshold. And that year he made sure or he uh, happened to um, not make a lot in income. Um, and uh, both those things allowed him to put that money into the Roth IRA. And now his Roth IRA is worth, and we had this number and no one else had, um, and we revealed it, $5 billion. <laughs> um, uh, and this was a secret because uh, Forbes had estimated his wealth at like $2 billion. So nobody really knew that he had this giant, um, giant secret investment that he will never, if he doesn't pull any money out um, until he's almost 60 in like uh, a few years, He'll never have to pay any taxes on that again. Um, and so that was a question. We raised questions about whether that was um, entirely on the up and up. Um, so the first story was about legal tax avoidance um, and routine strategies. This was uh, not routine at all. 
um, it was Baroque uh, and elaborate and planned. And, um, and I think we raised questions about whether that was strictly um, within the letter. Of well, the it, it's certainly a flagrant abuse of the, of the purpose of the Roth IRA, which no is a, again, I mean, I, I have a, I have a Roth IRA. I think there's like $20,000 in it that I put in over a couple, you know what I mean? Over a couple yeah. of years. If I'm very lucky, again, it's invested in like a mutual fund. If I'm, if I'm lucky and the stock market continues to go up when I retire, that'll be, that's what it's for. Right. He, on the other hand, instead of buying a mutual fund buys tons and tons of shares of his own company with which he's able to do because as the founder, what he can basically set the stock price to some extent, he can decide that the stocks I'm buying are, are extremely cheap. Therefore I can buy a whole lot of them. Well, not, not exactly. I mean, he's supposed to have uh, external experts say um, this valuation is fair and proper um, because when you're at a startup company, um, you at the very, very beginning on day one, uh, no startup is worth anything, of course, but at a certain point, it does become worth something. Um, and what he managed to do uh, is get it sort of blessed by um, outsiders as being valid that these shares were worth fractions of a penny. Then in a matter of weeks, they got 4.5, if I'm going correctly, $4.5 million investment from other companies, from banks. Um, uh, into the company, it, literally in weeks. Um, and so that raises questions about whether those valuations at a fraction of a penny okay. are actually fair and proper. Yeah, so he buys tons of shares of his own company. He says, this, this is just my little company. I don't know if it's going to turn into anything. It's like, where's yeah. the PayPal? What is this? I don't know. I no came up with this yesterday. Yeah. And yeah. then, bah, I don't know. <laughs> he Then he buys he buys an incredible number of them because they cost 0. 0.00001 cents or whatever. Um, and then the company immediately gets a huge investment, obviously takes off like a rocket. Now he's got $5 billion in a Roth IRA that will never be taxed and that he can use to invest in other things. It's basically like like my Roth IRA, Roth IRA, if anybody who's listening who has one, it's like a nice little investment vehicle to like help you save for retirement, supplement your income in retirement. For him, it's now a permanent tax-free venture capital fund almost. Oh, yeah. And he uh, moved some of that PayPal to Facebook, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and watched that uh, balloon from the Facebook investment. So that's his investment vehicle. Um, it's a pretty nice gig if you can get it. Now, I posted about that Peter Thiel story because I was I was shocked by it on Twitter. Someone replied to me, hey, tell me how this fucks up your day. You know, hey, Adam, what do you care if Peter Thiel didn't? He, he, so he, so the guy didn't pay some taxes. Ah, you're jealous. Right. You you wish that you didn't have to pay taxes. Peter Thiel's smarter than you. That's why he's so rich. We have heard um, that critique. And, um, you know, one distillation of this idea is when uh, Hillary Clinton raised that Donald Trump had not paid any um, taxes, uh, speculated that he hadn't paid taxes. And he said, that means I'm smart. There is a strain of thinking in American um, society that not paying taxes is smart. Um, but uh, what what do we t pay taxes for? Well, we, there are two reasons we pay taxes. One is to fund roads and bridges and basic science. And when people get a vaccine to save them from a uh, mortal illness or they drive to work um, or they fly in an airplane that doesn't crash 
Um, mm -hmm. They owe the federal government, and the federal government needs to be funded for basic services to keep um, us safe and healthy and keep society functioning. Um, and the government depends on taxes. Uh, so that's the first reason. Um, everything st stems from that. And we periodically are convulsed in fears that Social Security will go bankrupt, that Medicare will go bankrupt. Um, the go federal government has been starved of funds and we've been um, stripping the uh, regulators of the ability to keep unsafe chemicals uh, out of circulation and um, keep our food safe and things like that. So that's what the government does and it needs money from tax dollars. The other big issue is that there is a fundamental agreement that we have in society, which essentially says, you know, we're all in it together and we're going to pay our fair share. And our system is based on the idea that the wealthy don't just pay more because they make more money, but that they pay a higher percentage of their income. Um, we have it's so what's called a progressive system, um, and that's the theory. And it's that we are in we have a shared sense of common good. Um, and the reality is that that society is inverted. We have a system on its head where uh, average people pay significant amounts of taxes, and the wealthy do not. Um, they pay less. Um, it's a regressive system, not a progressive system. And so it sort of inverts the basic sense of fairness in our society. And once you have done that and you rupture that uh, sense of fairness and democracy, then you really risk, uh, I think, a kind of erosion of societal norms and a belief in our sort of shared system. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, we got to take a, a really quick break. I have so many more questions for you about this, though. But we'll be right back with more Jesse Isinger. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Jesse Isinger. Uh, so you've used this incredible trove of tax information that you've received to really blow the lid off of what turns out to be, I always thought we had a progressive tax system. Turns out we have the opposite. <laughs> turns out that poor folks are paying more in taxes than the wealthiest Americans are. Uh, that's important information to have. But there was also a big brouhaha around this reporting that maybe it was uh, – uh, you know, violated people's privacy to, uh, you know, reveal this information about their taxes. I know you talk about that in the reporting, but but could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your feeling about it as as reporters? I mean, if you're Warren Buffett, you got to be there. Going, hey, this is my this is my private information here. Yeah. Um, and some people have objected to us publishing their private information. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, in particular, who um your listeners might know, uh, runs one of the biggest media organizations in uh, the world, uh, objected to his private information um, being public and kind of made rumblings about how he wanted to uh, uh, find the perpetrator uh, of the, <laughs> the leaker, if there is one, and, um, you know, chase him to the ends of the earth. Um uh, we were cognizant, of course, of the privacy concerns, and we believe that this information, um, our stories, um, are in the public interest. And um, so it, just to back up and walk your readers through um, what happened here is that we received this um, huge trove of information, um, and we are not discussing how we received it or uh, from whom we received it, um, the source or sources uh, we believe need to be protected. Um, we don't know uh, a lot about the information from the source or sources um, about the identity of it. Um, and uh, But there are things we do know that we're not discussing. And we're not discussing it, as I say, because we want to protect um, the source or sources. But uh, we are not publishing every scrap of information that we receive. What we're doing is using the information to write stories that we believe are in the public interest. And I really defy anybody to, with a kind of honest, um, uh, you know, a, um, an intellectually honest uh, argument that's not made in bad faith, say that it's not newsworthy that the wealthiest person in the world can pay zero in federal income tax, or that the second wealthiest mm -hmm. person in the world can pay zero in federal income tax, or that one of the most powerful and wealthy donors to um, political groups, Peter Thiel, Donald Trump, um, could secretly accumulate $5 billion in a um, tax-free way that uh, in a vehicle that is meant for um meant for you know middle-class retirees and so uh we are culling the information and treating it very responsibly we're trying to be responsible stewards of it um and we're going to continue to do that because we believe that this is in the public interest and there's a long history in journalism of important stories being based on leaked information or information of you know that the pentagon papers and, and whatnot you know Absolutely. We, uh, we don't need to run through all of that um, I'm no, it's a, but you're, it's a very good point. It's a cornerstone of investigative reporting to take 
secrets and in responsible ways uh, reveal them to the public. Um, and in, in almost every case, we're taking private information that people didn't want us to have um, and didn't want us to know and don't want the public to know. Uh, so yes, that's what we do. We take private information, we make it public, but we only do that when we think that the private information is worthy of being public. And you're not you're not doing the WikiLeaks thing. You're not uploading a, a 200,000 page long PDF to, you know, uh, a BitTorrent site somewhere where like, you know, and just and just split spraying it out. You're going through these documents and writing stories based on them, using your judgment as journalists about what is newsworthy and, you know, what does the public need to know? And I presume you're doing your best to verify all the information that you've been given. Well, that's a very good point, too, uh, and I should have raised it earlier, which is that the most important thing for us is to figure out whether the information was true or not. Um, yeah. And then uh, so when you receive uh, information, what we don't I don't really care. I'm very agnostic about the provenance of the information. I don't care if it comes from a Republican, a Democrat, um, a disgruntled employee, um, a crazy person, an enemy of the United States. What I care about is, one, whether the information is true and verifiable, and then, two, the most important thing, whether it's newsworthy. Um, and so the most important thing we did was uh, when we first got this was try to figure out whether this was true or not. And we verified it through lots of careful steps. We um, ultimately uh, verified information on around probably over 50 individuals um, before we even started to report on the people who we were going to report on. And then, of course, what we did was we took the things that we were going to report directly to the people that we were going to report. And there's a basic rule in good journalism that you're a no surprises journalist, which means that uh, you run everything that is about a certain person that's going to be in a story that you're planning to write in a story by that person um, ahead of time and ask a lot of questions. And you have, and the other requirements you can't, they can't, um, look into your heart and know this, but you have to be intellectually honest. You have to be open to being persuaded that the information is uh, either incorrect or more importantly, that the context is wrong and that you, because you can get a lot of facts right, um, but actually get the overall picture wrong. And you need to be open to being persuaded that uh, you could be wrong. And some of people engaged with us and dis I, we had a long discussion with Carl Icahn who made an argument that it was legitimate that he didn't pay taxes. Um, and Warren Buffett sent us a long letter and then some didn't engage at all. Uh, you know, Bloomberg gave that sort of veiled threat and um, uh, Bezos's people didn't even respond to our emails um, uh, and declined to receive the information. But uh, that is an extraordinarily important point of it. And when we did that, no one disputed the veracity of the data. So the data are real and valid. And then, as you say, we're not willy-nilly uh, splaying it all out uh, on the Internet. We're going through it very carefully just for the things that we think are relevant. Yeah. And you have, I mean, it certainly seems that the, the information is true if you've got the billionaires themselves saying, well, I don't think this, is, this should be made public. That would seem to imply <laughs> that the information is accurate. But I mean, the release of this was a, a bit of a bomb going off. I mean, I know at the IRS itself, like if you're working at the IRS, you're like, oh, my God, this is a 
this is a big leak. This is like heads need to roll because, you know, this this information is supposed to be private. Like it is it does seem like we should have the presumption of privacy at the IRS. Um, like even though it's a complicated thing, I'm happy the information is out. I agree with you that it's newsworthy. I think it's important that the public needs to know it, especially because these are this is information that we simply did not have before. Um, but at the same time, from the IRS's perspective, they're like, oh no. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, the IR- the IRS presumably is not happy about this, and um, this is this is. Um, probably the biggest uh, uh, disclosure of private IRS information by orders of magnitude in the history of the U.S. government, and um, actually one of the biggest disclosures of private government information, period, um, in history. Uh, And um, again, uh, you know, and it makes people whose taxes we have uncomfortable. And I'm sorry about that, or I'm a little sorry about that. Um, but uh, we're not, this isn't displaying every single average American. This is displaying the relevant information about people who are uh, really effectively public figures. Um, when you become the richest man in the world, I think you are effectively a public figure. Um, and it's important to understand what you, uh, what kind of taxes you pay. Uh, uh, I think, and taxes are not private everywhere and always and have been for eternity. In fact, um, there was a disclosure requirement in after the Civil War. During the Civil War, we passed our first income tax. And as part of the income tax, there was a disclosure requirement. And so the New York Times printed in its pages in 1865 the income and the taxes paid for Cornelius Vanderbilt and Astor um, and all the wealthy people at the time. That was public. And in Wisconsin, you can get public records requests to find out what everyone in the state, anyone in the state has paid in state income taxes. Um, And we have disclosed income taxes for individuals in uh, the past and we, uh, other countries do it. So Sweden and other Scandinavian countries disclose the income taxes that are paid by everybody. So this is, it's a matter of dispute or at least debate whether this should always be private. One of the bizarre things is that corporations, which um, you know, only Mitt Romney thinks are as people, um, you know, um, uh, uh, they're actually pieces of paper, they're entities, they, um, uh, they're entities that are construct constructs of the U.S. government um, uh, and uh, are subject to the rule of law. They keep their taxes private and there's no really great argument for why corporations should keep their taxes. Wow. Private. So um, so the privacy argument only goes so far. Yeah, I mean, look, I, even if we have this presumption that taxes should be private, which I think we can have a debate on whether or not they should. I mean, there's lots of financial information that's not private. Um, home, home ownership, for instance, property ownership is not private. You can go down to your mm-hmm. local, you know, city hall records and see, you know, who owns what building and how much they paid for it in, in most jurisdictions. Um, but even if we were to say that's private, well, there, there's a uh, I think the ethical argument for in some cases, private information should be made public for the good of the public good. Uh, this is clearly one of those, in my view. Um, it's just a very interesting case to think about whether or not that's the case. And it's, I don't know, something, something we need to discuss when we're talking about this. Um, but uh, so one question I have, though, is that just to come back to this point about uh, whether or not we should be wagging our fingers at these billionaires or if this is a systemic 
problem. Um, to what degree are these folks in charge of, you know, responsible for creating the system that they're taking advantage of? You know, when we look at the the why we have the tax system that we do in America um, and, and who it benefits, like, you know, how, how much how much are they influencing their own ability to make use of these these loopholes? Obviously, people like Mike Bloomberg have incredible power over uh, American public policy. Well, I think that uh, these billionaires do have personal responsibility for um, their approach to taxation. And um, it, there's really a spectrum. So you take Warren Buffett and um, uh, there are two things that um, are questionable about Buffett's approach. One is that when he says, I pay higher uh, lower tax rate than my secretary, he's only really talking about tax rates, rates on um, his income, and he gets capital gains income rather than ordinary income, which is taxed at higher rates. Um, but of course, he takes very little income, so he's essentially talking about something that's basically irrelevant to him. Like and, they should they he, should be taking fifty percent of my zero dollars, not fifteen percent <laughs> right, of my exactly. zero dollars. So, yeah. so uh, you know, uh, and does he understand? Um, it, it, all the dynamics at play here, of course, he's one of the most brilliant financial wizards of our time. So uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. The other thing um, is that what he said in response to us was, look, I'm going to give a lot of my money. I'm going to give over 99% of my money to charity. And I think that's better use of my money than to go uh, have it go to the government and say, pay down um, our debt to China. And like, I would like to allocate my tax dollar the way I want. Um, I'm sure you uh, have the uh, things that you like that our government does and things that you don't like that our government does. Um, and I think we all think that we could do a better job than those idiots in Washington. Um, but that's not the way our democratic system is uh, arrayed. But billionaires get to be out of the tax system and then allocate their tax dollars um, in ways that are untaxed, they're dollars that, and they don't get taxed and they get to allocate them for their own policy preferences and hobbies and obsessions um, and influence and then live on in, for generations. And then the final point I would make is that you take people like the Kochs and the Mars family, uh, people like that, and they have actively uh, influenced our political system, funded our political system um, for decades to reduce their tax burden, to cut the estate tax, get rid of the estate tax, to lower taxes on corporate taxes, to lower income taxes, to lower capital gains taxes. That has been one of the most aggressive campaigns from the ultra wealthy over the last four decades. And it's been enormously successful. In fact, the Republican Party is almost built entirely around the idea of lowering taxes. Um, and so they have influenced the political system that we have. They have built the system that we have had through their um, their wow. political, the people that they've supported politically. I just, the Mars family, the M&M people, when I buy the <laughs> peanut M&Ms, this is what I'm supporting? It's it's shocking, isn't it? You know, uh, <laughs> sweet on the outside, but not on the inside. <laughs> well, and speaking of charities, not only do they get to direct it towards whatever they feel like rather than, 
you know, say schools in their area, uh, public housing, like things that other people need. They get to say, oh, I want to I want to support the opera or whatever the fuck it is <laughs> that they that they're interested in. They also use those charitable contributions as a tax dodge themselves. Like when, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg made headlines years ago. Oh, he's going to donate his whole fortune to charity. Well, what he was actually donating it to was a charity that he solely controlled, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, um, that he is then able to use for the purposes of more furthering more political power for himself and that he can pass on to his descendants should he so choose. Like there are literally people who. Uh, you know, main, you know, the, the, the fucking Rockefeller foundation, like, you know, the, the, the folks in control of that are still very powerful because now they control a giant charitable ch- foundation. Um, it doesn't mean they're giving it to, you know, just, they're giving it to uh, anti-malarial drugs or whatever. They're, they're holding on to it in a new form. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I, I hate to correct you, but, uh, Zuckerberg didn't give it to a charity. That was the entire point. He gave it to an LLC, a for-profit entity. Um, and some of it does charitable, uh, giving, and some of it is investments that they deem to be socially worthy, um, but could be for-profit investments that they would actually make money on. So, um, so, you know, when he said that he was going to give his entirety of his fortune to charity. He didn't give the entirety of his fortune and he didn't give to charity. Other than that, it was a perfectly true statement. Um, the, um, and you're, you're absolutely right that uh, what philanthropy does is not often the kind of bread and butter, unglamorous work of government. Charities do not hire inspectors to go into condo buildings um, mm-hmm. to look to see whether their foundation is um, going to last for more than 40 years. Um, that's what government does. And so charities are glamorous. Charities are trendy. Charities do, um, as you say, the opera, but they also do things that will burnish people's reputation. And um, Rockefeller invented modern philanthropy in order to take his reputation from being one of the most vilified um, robber barons of his time to one of the kind of most glorious and beloved um, names in American society. And that sort of worked for him. Uh, And whether that system is the way we want to design our society is something that we should all be thinking hard about. Yeah, I mean, if, if I can make one more point on this, and I'm sorry to harp on it, but, you know, Bill Gates is doing the same thing today. He got his own Netflix series about how great and charitable he is uh, based on doing this. And, you know, I'll admit some of the work is good. Maybe, you know, if Bill Gates can actually use his money to make a dent in malaria in Africa. That's a, that might be a good thing to do. But at the same time, Bill Gates has his fortune. Because of the work of millions of people that fed into it, you know, Microsoft has this many employees, all those people drive on public roads, they their kids go to public schools, like there's all of this public resource that is funneling together into Microsoft and then into Bill Gates's hand, you know, the 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 billions that he has is like made by America as a nation, not just him personally, and when you're the recipient of that amount of concentrated public good, you should have to pay back to the public good. You should have to pay for the fucking roads like everybody else. You should have to pay for your share of the public roads, which is your share is a lot higher than everybody else's. Um, sorry, I feel like now I'm sounding like I'm giving a speech. I apologize. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't say that better myself, so uh, I don't have a response. We should just you know, drop mic. To, to what degree is this the result of 
uh, lax enforcement on the IRS's part. I know the IRS has had its budget cut over the over last decades, um, and you know the the to the degree that they're not able to effectively audit the wealthy anymore is what I have read in my own you know little dicking around on the internet. You as a journalist is that uh, a component that you've seen of this story? Yes. Well, uh, in fact, uh, Paul Keel and I did a big series of stories on the gutting of the IRS, which is probably possibly why we got this trove of information, because Mm. um, people were concerned about the wealthy avoiding taxes um, and uh, and gave us the information after we wrote that series of stories. And that is an extraordinary story that accelerated in 2010 when Republicans took aim at the IRS and slashed its budget by billions of dollars. And what that has meant is that tens of thousands of employees have left the IRS and among them, the most skillful auditors, the ones that could audit the biggest corporations and audit the ultra wealthy. And uh, so now today, the IRS has fewer auditors than we did in 1950, uh, under 10,000 in uh, recently, when uh, which is lower than at any time since uh Eisenhower was in um, was really? president, and uh, you know the year that Stalin died, and um, we have a lot uh, more people than we did back then, and also we, a lot have, more ultra we wealthy have, people. We have uh, the economy was a seventh of the size, and uh, wow. the population was um, half, and we have had, as you just said, um, an extraordinary explosion of income inequality and wealth inequality. Um, so now. Uh, we uh, have wealth inequality that is greater than at any time since the Gilded Age um, in America, and the wealthy are audited at uh, collapsing rates. And in fact, your chances of being audited now, if you are a member of the working poor, um, are higher than if you make over $600,000 a year. Wow. Um, and the ultra, ultra wealthy are audited at slightly higher rates than the working poor, you can rest assured, but the uh, audits have actually gotten much worse and thinner and less aggressive. But the working poor, um, which are disproportionately black, um, get audited at higher rates than people making five and $600,000 a year. And the reason for that is that wow. they get the earned income tax credit. Um, and Republicans have said, if People who are getting the earned income tax credit, they're, um, they're probably cheating, and we really need to verify that. And so um, we're, there are high levels of cheating. There are high levels of fraud there, and so that needs to be audited. And so the most audited county in America, Paul Keel wrote, was um, a county in Mississippi. Really? I, I mean, uh, <laughs> just as a... This is like a, a, a usage of resources. If I was trying to, you know, I'm in charge of the IRS. Where should we spend our auditing dollars? I think we should probably spend them on the people who are, you know, <laughs> earn the most, the people who have the most wealth, the people who avoid taxes at the highest rate, the people who you go for the whales, not for the little fish. If you're trying to, you know, solve a solve a problem like that. I mean, obviously, you, you know, you, you want to spread out and get get everybody have it be that kind of system where nobody wants to, you know, cheat on their taxes because everyone knows that they could that that, you know, someone could come ring their doorbell. But, uh, you know, you, you don't want to enforce the people who don't have any money to give you. <laughs> <laughs> you would think, well, we asked um, the IRS about that. The IRS wouldn't really talk to us. But when um, the head of the IRS was hauled in front of Congress and asked about our stories and asked about the audit rates, he they admitted that the reason they do it is that it's easier. 
it's easier to audit the poor than it is to audit the rich. Um, wow. And so, uh, and with fewer resources, they go to the, the easier thing. And so there was a SWAT team that they created in 2010 to audit the ultra rich. And then that, we all, that's another story that we wrote. Um, it, that also got completely gutted um, and basically was completely unsuccessful um, wow. and has it since been unwound. Um, so the IRS is a shadow of its former self. Um, and in fact, Biden has uh, tried to um, revive the IRS and proposed a, a big budget increase so that we could audit the wealthy and get dollars that are owed um, literally billions and billions of dollars um, are owed from people who don't file their taxes and owe taxes. These are non-filers. Um, mm -hmm. And we know that they owe taxes and we can't collect them, even though um, they're, they're millionaires who owe taxes who we know about, but we don't collect on their unpaid taxes. Um, this is not actually changing the taxes at all. We'd just be simply collecting the taxes that we know um, are owed and out there um, that people have, but we can't do it because uh, we've gutted the IRS so significantly. I mean, this is basic stuff. If you want a government to work well, you need to like, <laughs> I just, the, the degree to which it demonstrates the degree to which there are folks who are in charge of running our government, whose goal appears to be to make it run as poorly as possible so they can get then blame it for running poorly and then make it use that as an excuse to make it run even worse. It's a it's self-defeating. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, I was going to say that the premise of your question is uh, um, if you want the government to work. Um, <laughs> and and uh, that's our uh, our elected leaders are certainly not operating from that premise often. Uh, you wrote a book. I want to finish with this. You wrote a book called The Chicken Shit Club. What an incredible title for a book to not. And this proves that you don't back down because I can imagine the number of people at your publisher who must have said, we can't call the book The Chicken Shit Club. And you're like, no, fuck you. That's the title of the book. That's what we're calling it, because that's what these people are. Tell me about this book. And and uh, and yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, well, amazingly enough, uh, Simon Schuster, which published it, was supportive of the title. It comes from a Jim Comey line. When he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York um, in the early 2000s, gathered all his prosecutors together and said, how many of you guys have never lost a case? And a bunch of these go-getters, because they like, went to Harvard and Yale and they're uh, real hotshots, they all shot up their hands because they were so proud of their undefeated record. And he looked around the room and said, you guys are the chicken shit club. And what he <laughs> meant was, you're taking on easy cases. You're just taking on slam dunks and you're not actually doing justice. You're not taking mm. on the difficult cases. And my argument is that uh, the American legal system has become the chicken shit club writ large. We do not punish and prosecute powerful wrongdoers. The most powerful, wealthiest people in American society have impunity to commit crimes. And the poor, disproportionately people of color, they're the ones who are punished. And we live in um, a two-tiered justice system, just like we live in a two-tiered tax system. It's sort of, the tax stuff is a continuation of my work on the justice system. And so what I wrote about is like, everybody knows why that no banker went to prison after the wake of the financial crisis in 2008. And I tried to explain that. And I said, this is a much more significant problem. And it just, it isn't just about the banks. It covers almost every corporation and 
really whole swaths of the economy, like commercial real estate and political lobbying and taxes, all the stuff that uh, Donald Trump's administration revealed about how under-policed and lack of policing there is uh, among the super wealthy. Yeah. Well, how do we, do you have any idea about how we go about changing any of this? What, are there any promising steps that you, that you think could be taken or is that outside of the realm of your, uh, you know, what, what you do? No, no, no. I mean, I, I had a million proposals about, um, prosecuting the ultra wealthy. Um, but this isn't a happy story, um, with a nice ending (laughs) with like a bunch of, um, you know, policy suggestions that then get adopted when the wealthy and powerful have disproportionate power in our country. Um, they, uh, want impunity and they don't want to pay their fair share. Um, and that's the system we have. So, you know, like you can imagine a better system, but unless people are really working for it in effective ways, um, we're not going to get there. It, it's almost sometimes it seems to me to be a law of nature. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer is a law of nature to a certain extent, because when you're rich, you have power and you can use the power to bring more riches to yourself. I always thought about it in terms of this is a dumb analogy, but. When, in terms of when I used to get stage time as a comic, when I was starting up, it was very hard for me to get stage time and I needed it to get better. You know, I, I had to go right. to open mics. I had to beg to get on shows and stuff like that. Now that I, you know, it's been over 10 years later and I've had, found some success as a comedian, it's very easy for me to get stage time. I can show up to a show. They'll just throw me up. And when that started happening, I was like, that's backwards, right? I it shouldn't be that way. I needed it more then. The people who need it more should have an easier time getting it. It should be harder for me because I already have all the advantages. Right. You're, you're absolutely right that this is a system that is self-perpetuating. But I guess I don't want to read in the listeners a sense of such deep cynicism that this is a law of nature. It is not. Um, and we have had a different system. And we've had a different system um, mm. in recent times. Um, in the 1950s, we had a system that was where prosperity was shared more broadly, obviously not shared by black people or women, um, uh, but economic inequality was much, much lessened. And uh, unionization out, uh, you know, there were powerful institutions that, um, that counterbalanced the wealthy's uh, power. And in other societies, in, um, uh, in Scandinavian societies, there are uh, there's shared prosperity um, and uh, people live healthier, happier lives in many ways. So I don't think it is impossible to imagine a, a different future and to build a different society that is more equitable. But it, it, it takes work. Um, it takes uh, time um, uh, and it does take imagination. But you need to. But it is possible. Thank you. That's what I needed to hear. A better world is possible. Well, look, that, that's our time. Jesse, I got to thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for this incredibly impactful reporting and for the work that you do. And I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk to us about it. I hope you'll come back again sometime next time you blow the lid off of an entire <laughs> structural uh, emergency in our society. Yes. Next, next blue moon. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
Well, thank you once again to Jesse for coming on the show. If you want to check out his book, The Chicken Shit Club, once again, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, Ryan Connor, our engineer, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I am recording this very episode for you on. Uh, you can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. And by the way, if you have a suggestion for a topic you would like to hear covered on the show, or if you just want to send me a note, you can send it to factually at adamconover.net. That's factually at adamconover.net. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. I've been Adam Conover. We'll see you next week on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.